Welcome to Confessions, Convictions, and Conversations, a podcast exploring the cool Christian girl's guide to living in America. I'm your girl, April Davenport. I'll reveal to you a little personal testimony while merging ministry, education, and real life. We will also discuss current events with relevant figures of our time. It is the perfect blend of headline news, black girl magic, and of course, Jesus juice. Come with me on a journey you won't soon forget. So stay tuned, don't change the channel, and let's take a ride. Welcome to Confessions, Convictions, and Conversations. I'm your host, April Davenport. Wow, what a year it has already been. So much has happened, but so many good things have happened since we last talked. We have a new president and a new vice president. So congratulations to President Biden and Vice President Harris. We wish you much success during your first four years in office, but even shorter than that, we wish you much success during your first 100 days. So we are praying for the new administration. We are praying for your first year, and but we are praying also for you during this new year of 2021. As we continue to pray for you to have a great fresh start, last year we discussed, or last week, I'm sorry, we discussed freeing your spirit. But if you remember one of our points, we know that it is hard to free your spirit if there is so much happening in the mind. Um, so you must also free your mind. So I am excited today to welcome my guest, Dr. Monique Gatson. Hello, Dr. Gatson. How are you? Hello, April. How are you? I am good. So welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you here. Um, and so so that I don't mess up any of your titles or anything like that. Why don't you tell the people about yourself? Yes. Yeah, so, well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm so excited to be here with you and congratulations on your podcast. So thank excited. You. So proud of you. Thank you. Um, what about me? Okay. So yeah, I'm a licensed professional counselor in clinical um, mental health counseling. I've also done a specialty in spirituality and counseling. So I've been taught in the integration of um, theology and psychology. And lastly, I did my PhD work in marriage and family therapy. So I've been married 25 years, got two girls, Lord help me. <laughs> and um, do um, I host a podcast called End the Church Said, where I discuss um, church and culture from a Christian counseling perspective, how the body can be healthy for the members, how the members can be healthy for the body. So that's the platform premise I kind of focus on there. And um, let me see. And I'm, I'm, right now I'm doing a little bit of private practice and consultation work. So that's what I'm doing right about now. Wow. Well, we are so glad to have you here. Um, we know that you are knowledgeable in your field. And actually, um, we know each other because you were once the uh, licensed church counselor for my church, uh, our church, Beulah Missionary Baptist Church. And um, so I was just always so blessed whenever I was privy to hear you uh, speak on various subjects where uh, the church or spirituality crossed uh, paths with um, either mental illness or issues of the mind. And so so um, I think it's great to see where those things run perpendicular or um, maybe sometimes parallel because sometimes people think that they are two totally different 
subjects. Um, before we get into our conversation today, if you could just in a, a nutshell, maybe describe sometimes the difference between psychiatry, psychology and therapy. Yeah. So psychiatry is a medical field. People who are psychiatrists go to medical school. Um, those of us who are psychologists and therapists, mental health clinicians across the board, we go um, through graduate school. So that's the first distinction there. Psychiatrists are the ones that can prescribe medication. Psychologists do a lot of um, administering of tests around like abnormal psychologies, um, personality disorders. Um, they do a lot of work around memory cognitive functioning, that type of thing. And therapists, we usually work more with um, kind of the talk therapy end of things, if you will. We diagnose, um, we can do some assessments, and um, usually we all try to work in, you know, tandem with one another to, to create like a more comprehensive, if you will, approach to mental health. Okay, so today we want to um, talk about mental health and awareness in the Black community. And so we know that uh, mental health, whether it's in the Black community or the broader uh, community, continues to carry a stigma. Um, and so, you know, you have those who don't acknowledge mental health. Uh, then you have those who acknowledge it, but are possibly not knowledgeable about it. So it may stay kind of over in left field. And then you have those who definitely acknowledge it, but they might not have any knowledge about it. So they are unaware of how to actually deal with it when it comes across their path. Um, and so, you know, even though there have been several advances in the mental health field and the mental health community, why do you think there continues to be such a stigma surrounding mental health, especially in the Black community, and not only the Black community, but the Black Christian community? Yeah, um, I think, as you stated, I think that there's a lack of knowledge. I do believe that there's still this theory that floats among us as a, as a community of people, as a church community of people, faith community of people, that it's something that we have control over. You know, if we pray hard enough, if we eat the right foods, if we do the right things, you know, then we should not struggle in this area. But I don't know that we really understand that in some cases there is a physiological issue that is going on with the brain. And we know that the brain is the most important organ in our body. I mean, it's like the command center, right? It, it sends all the messages out to everything in our bodies. So I wonder sometimes, um, and I say this simply because of the fact that as I have been on this mission to educate a little bit more uh, regularly, I, I'm, I'm seeing people's faces kind of light up and like light bulb moments, like the ahas. And um, so that is making me um, deduce from these encounters that I'm having that maybe we have not quite understood it to be like a literal disorder of the brain. You know, that there is a physiological component in most cases, when it comes to some of the disorders that we're talking about and illnesses that we're talking about concerning mental health. So I think that that is a thing. I think the other thing is that we still carry some of that um, generational pride, if you will, where, you know, and, and I hear 
it, you know, people will say it even in the counseling office, you know, our ancestors had to deal with worse, you know, and they survived and they made it through and we're strong people and, you know, we're resilient and we have to just know how to kind of plummet through things, which, okay, yeah, um, okay, sure. But um, I do believe that there's still a little bit of us holding on to that mentality where we feel as though, again, that this is something for us to overcome as opposed to just acknowledging it as it is and figuring out what are going to be the more um, or the most effective ways to deal with it. So, and I hear you talking about, you know, generations. And so we know that, you know, when we look at the familial structure, generations become very important, right? So if, you know, if you have a family where there are generations who've previously been educated, it might be a little bit easier for that family to begin to accept mm -hmm. uh, newer knowledge and to accept things. Um, whereas if you have a family where um, if you have, you know, first generation college students that are just now going to college, it's a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. So where do you think these conversations need to start? Is it important that they first start in the home? Or do you think that the responsibility uh, needs to lie with the school system? Or does the responsibility need to lie within the Black church? around mental health in order for us to begin as a community to understand that this is really a critical need that we need to address. Absolutely. Honestly, I believe all of those entities have some shared responsibility, honestly. Um, it would be nice if, you know, the village kind of were all on the same page, you know, um, that would definitely be so much more helpful. However, I do believe that um, with most things, things do need to begin in the home. I do. However, comma, I say kind of based on what you were even saying, depending on the family structure, you know, depending on the, the system there that you're working with, if, if um, one of the children maybe showing signs of depression or anxiety, you know, sometimes it is treated more as a you know, what do you have to be bored about? You're blessed, get up and do something, you know, or as I have been talking about here recently, it seems as though activity is the remedy for mental health issues. You know, well, if you're anxious about something, then let's go do something. Let's go do something to burn that energy. If you're down about something, then let's go and get involved in something. So I do believe that, you know, I say this, but this, the disclaimer is, of course, it is dependent upon the family structure, you know, the system there. However, it would be good to have these conversations to understand. And, and honestly, I think just like we have to think about um, how we look at, say, hypertension. Right. Okay? And if there is a genetic component, and then there is even debate when we're talking about genetics in this day and time, but it will, will we'll go with what we know, you know, when we're talking about genetics, it's like, okay, if hypertension has run in the family, and if we say, you guys, hypertension has run in the family, so you may want to go ahead and consider, you know, making um, better food choices earlier in life, or you may want to go ahead and institute exercise as a part of your lifestyle, right. so that these things can kind of help to ward off what could potentially develop into hypertension. I think we have to say the same thing when it, re when it is uh, regarding our mental health. I think we need to be able to say things like, you know what, you're going to be sad. Right. Life is going to bring about 
circumstances and events that are going to make us sad, that are going to make us disappointed, that probably even will cause us to be depressed. There are going to be some things that will make us anxious. And I do believe that this process of surrendering to that, acknowledging it as opposed to this conjuring up of energy to um, smother that, you know, to try to say like, this doesn't exist again, you know, like if we kind of busy our way out of these things, then we don't have to deal with them, which that's so not true. So I do believe that the conversations like you're saying that needs to start at home is to be able to talk about, um, they're going to be the not so good feelings. You know, I know it's in this day and time, we're all about positive stuff and send the positive vibes and, you know, the positive psychology. And I'm, and I'm not against that, but I am saying I warn against that. I warn against that when we try to paint that as this wide brushstroke that is supposed to apply to everything. Because then when we have times like we're living in now, it is harder to deal because guess what? We are not taught how to cope. Okay. We're just taught how to try to keep it positive, you know? So then if the, if, if I've lost a loved one or, you know, there's some kind of diagnosis that is of concern and by nature, you know, those things will make us a little anxious or it may make us a little bit sad. But if we're being told, you know, don't, um, don't entertain those emotions, but do something where you won't feel anxious or you won't feel sad about this, then that really just gives that thing room to just continue to grow on us because we're not paying attention to it. So, you know, it's been said that our former president um, Mm -hmm. always employed the power of positive thinking and whether or not (laughs) that worked or not, (laughs) but it was a tactic that he's always used even before he uh, got into the White House. And so it was one of the things that made him so successful because whenever he was uh, presented in front of people, people always believed what he said because he always found the positive measure. Um, So, but one of the things I hear you saying is you're not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that. However, it would be euphoric almost for us to believe that everything in life is positive, right? And so if we, you know, make our children believe that there is never any unfortunate things or never any consequences or never any sad days or bad days, then we begin to um, not teach them how to really understand or process their emotions. And then those could begin to fester into broader or bigger things. Um, So then, but what would you say then to those people who are fearful of, um, you know, it's been said that in the school system, there's a lot of labeling happening that perhaps, you know, a child may not be suffering with a illness, but um, maybe they're having just some behavioral issues or maybe they're doing what you're doing. Maybe they're having a hard time in life, but nobody is really talking to the child or, you know, getting to the root of what the issue is. And so, but they're just being labeled as something. Um, How does that play into like the mix up of what mental health and mental awareness really should be? Do you think that there's a lot of, would you say that there may be unqualified people in the school system? Or do you think that it plays into how 
um, busy our society is. And so people aren't really able to carefully calculate what might be actually happening. Yeah, I think it's a both and. Um, I do believe that um, when I when we say unqualified, let me let me be careful to say that they may be unqualified to do the deeper probing, the mm-hmm. deeper evaluations, you know, the deeper assessments that will be needed. It's like if you go to your general doctor, you know, they're going to be able to diagnose um, kind of broadly, but not maybe so much in depth, you know? So then if you are dealing with something a little bit more serious, then they're going to say, okay, you might need to go talk to a specialist about this. So I do believe that people's qualifications may go to a certain limit Mm -hmm. and therefore um, maybe, you know, they have to be the be all for that family or, Maybe they don't know to refer out to a specialist or maybe, you know, there's just a lot of ego that's in the way, you know, as well. Um, So I do believe that, you know, it could be any of that, all of that. It could be playing a, a part in why some of those things get overlooked. And then I do also believe that for some, you know, um, some kids and teens that I have talked with and dealt with, it, it really is um, something that is manifesting as a disorder when really and truly it just may have been um, an inability to grieve, you know, or a just not knowing what to do with all of these feelings that I have been dealing with. And yeah, you're right. We're in this busy world. So it's just easy for me to look at you and go, oh my goodness, you just, you're ADHD and you know, like get him something, um, a med, calm the him or her down. And we kind of, you know, shovel, shuffle, shuffle them along. And then it's kind of like next, you know, but in, in a lot of cases, there is a lot of misdiagnosing going on. I mean, when you see true ADHD in operation, you know, true ADHD, you know, so, but when you, when you start to say, um, when a person is starting to wonder, is that the case, then the way I'm trained, I'm trained to just start thinking deeper, like, oh, maybe this is not what it looks like on the surface. You know what I'm saying? Would you think, would you say that uh, mental health issues or even uh, diagnoses have always been as prevalent as they are now? Or do you think that it is a signifier of the current climate that we're in. And I don't mean just necessarily 2021, but I would just say maybe over the last decade or so, or would you say that there were probably the same proportion of mental health diagnoses in the 1920s or the 1950s? Um, Would you say that, or do you think that it's just more prevalent now because of the society that we currently live in? Yeah, I think it's more prevalent because of the society that we are in. Now, I do believe that probably to some degree, I might make an argument that it has been there in the same proportion. I just think that it's probably been misunderstood. I think it's been misdiagnosed. I think it's been ignored. (laughs) You know, I just think that um, we just kind of go, oh, that's just the way Uncle Sammy has always been, you know, kind of a thing, you know, it's just kind of this dismiss. So I would argue that there probably has been to some degree, maybe proportionally speaking, 
it being the same now with the society that we're dealing with today, the prevalence, I do believe, is going to be higher simply because of the fact that going back to the same thing I was just saying a minute ago, when we don't have, um, I know like with um, my girls as they have grown up over, over the years, I have always said to them, you know, sometimes you just have to be still. Right. Sometimes you have to just sit down. And I mean, I say that even in this day when, yes, you know, um, it is more, you know, the thing, the trend, I guess, to be grinding and busy. But what we don't understand is that when we keep trying to keep up that euphoric feel like you talked about a minute ago. I mean, and let's just even talk about it in, in terms of this euphoric feel. If we keep trying to go after what makes us have that euphoric feel, isn't that like what happens when people are addicted to drugs? Right. And or alcohol. Right. And or pornography. Right. And or shopping. I mean, whatever it is, right. I mean, fill in the blank. Right. But right. I do believe that, again, that is because we keep trying to chase this positive feel. Mm. Mm -hmm. And if we just don't recognize that, um, again, sometimes I mean, I have talked to a slew of parents in I don't know, within the last five years to tell them that your child may not need medication for their anxiety if you would reduce their schedule. Right, right. You have kids who are frenzied yes. because I have been in school all day. Now I'm running to my extracurricular activity. I'm preparing for a recital or a competition or a tournament or whatever the case may be. I don't finish there until eight o'clock. I got to go home. I still haven't eaten and I got a science project due tomorrow. And they are just like this trying to figure out how to get it all done. So, yeah, you pick that kid up, take that kid to the doctor. The doctor's going to say, "Woo, yeah, we got a lot of anxiety going on. Let me write a prescription. And I am saying that maybe if you would try to reduce the things that are causing some of this anxiety, then perhaps child may not need the medication. So I do believe that the current society is... Um, creating some of this, it is making it just ripe for that prevalence of, you know, mental health disorders to, to be on the rise. I, I agree with that um, wholeheartedly. Um, and if we think about uh, those who are suffering with mental illnesses, um, where do you see the family uh, and how critical it is for those persons to have that type of family support um, on the way to, I don't want to say uh, recovery or, you know, um, healing, but uh, coping with their mental illness. Um, how do you see their need for familial support or just support in general um, from those around them? And how critical do you see that support versus, uh, not to say that they don't need to be on medication, but where is there a balance uh, between the support system and the medication? Or do you see one being more important than the other? 
Yeah, I think that's case by case. You know, I, I think it, you, you, we have to just take those things case by case. But I do believe that um, just when, even if I had to think about it from a systemic perspective, there is usually something that is going on in the family system that is creating the anxiety in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is reason why um, family in general does not want to um, create quiet. Mm -hmm. Think about even this whole pandemic. I mean, you talk about divorces started increasing. Right. Okay. We know the prevalence of, you know, the anxieties and the depressions, even among children and among teens, not to mention just the general population started increasing. Why? Like, I mean, you know, that's the big question. Like, okay, why? Granted, yeah, now things are like, okay, we've never seen things like this before. You know, it's like what the world is going on in the world coming. Like, what's happening? Right. Yeah. Granted, there is a little heightened kind of like, wait, what's happening here? However, when you have a family system that does not know what to do with itself, when you have to slow down, then you start having to ask the question, like, what's going on within the family? Mm -hmm. You know, are mom and dad having problems where it, um, the busyness have, have, has um, kept them from dealing with that? So as long as we kind of keep going and we're like two ships, you know, in the night and everything, and we're kind of, you know, you get the kid, you got the kid, you're going to the girl. If that's all we're dealing with, again, kind of superficial surface, then we can kind of keep it moving. But when circumstances are such that it requires um, uh, having to stop, now everything that we've been running from all of a sudden is in our laps. You know, it's in our faces. So when kids don't know how to settle themselves down because they are so accustomed to, you know, being like the little rat on the on the wheel and everything, then of course they're going to be anxious because we don't know how to calm down. You know, um, of course, mom and dad are going to be um, a little bit more tense now because all of the things that we've been able to say, you know, we'll talk about that later or, you know, I got to go to work and we just don't deal with things. Now we have to sit here and look at all of this stuff we have swept under the rug. Right. And we can't go anywhere from that. Right. So I do believe that, you know, case by case, but I do believe that that is a question that the family has to ask what is going on in the system that is creating such anxiety that it might be manifesting itself in, you know, one of the kids or the parents or whatever the case may be. And if we stay at that keyed up state for too long, then yeah, we will need medication because see now the body is creating um, an overdose of the cortisol and all of those other adrenaline type of neurotransmitters are just going in there. Our bodies are flooded. Heart rates are always increased. You know, pupils are always dilated and everything is ready for fight and flight. And if we stay in that state all of the time, mm -hmm. then those things are some of those precursors to disease. Okay. Okay, that's helpful. Um, so as I mentioned before, we know that there are a lot of people, a lot of people who think that Christianity and mental health are always in opposition 
to one another. Um, and they think that the church is not able to respond in kind to that because of the opposition. Um, but there, we know that there's nothing in the Bible that says that the church cannot address issues of mental health. Um, and so along with just uh, maybe everyday traumas that people contend with, uh, the Black community as a whole has endured trauma, um, you know, uh, economic inequality, um, socio, uh, racist injustice, um, police brutality, racism, you know, many things as a community as a whole. And so what would you say the church's role is in helping to bring more mental health awareness to the Black community? Yeah, um, I think the church is critical. Church is central. Um, up into these newer generations, and I just get lost after X, Y, Z, and I'm, <laughs> I just can't even keep them straight in my mind, so I don't try anymore. But um, up until we get to these generations that are unchurched mm -hmm. or who now have the mindset that, <clears throat> excuse me, church is not as essential as previous generations have thought. The church has been the place in the black community that the black folk go to for whatever the issue is. Right. So I do believe, um, because I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. There may be fewer people that will still kind of come to the church. Mm -hmm. I still believe that the church is going to be, um, or still is very critical when it comes to the black community. I believe that the church's role is as you talked about all of those things that that black people are dealing with um, as a community now we are good to hear sermons preached on those things you know we 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 can acknowledge and you know we can draw <laughs> inferences from the bible to say you know just like the children of israel struggled or you know just like this people were oppressed by another group of people we can see ourselves so we get the sermons that, you know, identify with our struggle to which we can say, amen. I just don't think that we get much in terms of how do we remedy the effects of all of that okay. on us. That's where I think, you know, um, if I just had could gently kind of push <laughs> the church a little bit more, it would be there. Now, I, when I, when I started in the whole area of faith and mental health umpteen years ago, and I, uh, my father was a pastor. So talking with him, talking with a lot of his colleagues at that time, it, it just, you just, they, they hunt like, huh? You know, like I might as well have been talking German, you know, it just was not the thing. Now, over the years, I have been able to see the evolution and, and hear me say, I am speaking in my corner of the world. So I know other people's experiences may be totally different than this one clinician. And I acknowledge that now. But I, what I am saying is that um, there has been this evolution where there is more talk. Hear me say more talk about mental health in the church. So we will hear more about, you know, um, and thankfully, like, you know, at Beulah and Pastor Black, you know, there we did have and still do have counselor on staff. But we can we can say, you know, um, if you feel like you're going to be in need of more help, definitely, you know, go see a counselor or, you know, many pastors will say they will make those resources available and they partner with people. And, you know, we have names of people. I still 
personally think that that gives the feel that it is still over there. Kind of one of the comments you made a little yeah, bit earlier yeah. too. It's kind of, yeah, it's over there. You're like over go there. over there and talk to yeah, the counselor. Right. Yeah. Or go yeah. downtown to the counselor's the office. Space. Yeah. So kind of put that perimeter up, you know, where we are almost saying like, you know, yeah, we'll acknowledge it, but we might not still allow it to um, penetrate the wall that we got up around the city, if you will. So I do believe that these are opportunities. And if anything, I hope that we are kind of pulling from this pandemic, um, and especially with church doors being closed, brick and mortar. Mm -hmm. What is it that our people need to hear now more than anything? Right, right. Are you willing to allow a clinician who knows how to handle um, and not contradict what the scripture would say? Would you not allow for that person to speak to your people? Yeah. Mm -hmm. As a whole, because you are recognizing that people are struggling. Yeah. They're struggling. So I do believe the church has a central role, but I also think that this is for, you know, as we, we talk in that, in that hymn, you know, for this present age, like how do we need to serve this present age, this present age? I tell you, Dr. Diane Langberg said um, years ago when, when the whole talk about trauma and the new advances in trauma, she said almost probably close to a decade ago that mission uh, trauma was going to be the number one mission field for the mental health world. And here we sit. Right. Here we sit. And I have been saying, kind of feel like, you know, um, not, I don't want to say a prophet of doom, but what I have been saying is that if churches are not prepared to deal with the fallout of 2020 alone, okay? Now I have been in circles where I have said to people that, but a lot of things are cumulative. Mm -hmm. But if we don't address the fallout of 2020 from a mental and emotional perspective, I honestly believe that the church is going to miss an opportunity to minister like it needs to minister. Because what all only thing we're going to do is um, if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves per, um, perpetuating that need to get to that euphoric feel. Right. Right. And we have got to understand you got people who have lost more than one family member. Yeah. Due to COVID who had to have graveside services, whose families were across the country streaming through a computer, no repass. What do they do with all of that grief when they go home? Where is it being expressed? You know, are they just having to kind of lick their wounds and pick up and just kind of move on? Because, you know, again, this is what I've been taught. Yeah. Yeah. But if we don't, if we don't push the message during this time that um, this has been a hard year, right? 
And for some people, it's been a hard year on top of a hard life. Right. Okay. If we don't give permission and I, and I, um, this is one of the things that is kind of my prescription. If we don't allow the lament to take place, then we don't understand that we are negligent. And I would then say we're also guilty of perpetuating some of the mental health disorders that people will endure. Because clearly we see that people are in distress. Yeah. But what we are going to try to do is give you something so that you can keep the high as opposed to saying, let's lament together. Yeah, that's very powerful. Um, and I agree with that. And you brought up an interesting point um, about grief. Um, and <clears throat> obviously, you know uh, where my family and I are at this time. How would you say that grief plays on one's mental capacity and health? Um, do you think that people lose a piece of their mental capacity having gone through traumatic grief or, you know, grief, um, you know, you read so much on grief and the seven stages of grief and how long that might take. Um, so what would you say grief does to one's mental health? Yeah. If we don't process it well, it is going to be um, a detriment. It, it really can be. Um, and that's simply because again, if we are not careful to check our approaches to grieving, um, and again, if we're kind of um, encouraging the, you know, keep it moving and you know they would want you to, to move on and keep it going and, um, you know, we're going to just kind of keep this thing celebratory and never, ever allow for the lament, the grief, the, the what I call the, the bellows from the gut, we can't allow for that then um, especially when you talk about it in the um, perspective of it being traumatic, we already know what trauma does to the body. Mm -hmm. Trauma literally disrupts the brain. It disrupts the brain. I mean, it just does the brain like literally is shocked. Okay. So this goes way back to my opening statement about it being a physiological factor that we must consider. See, when we don't and when we try to tell people, oh, just get over it, just move on, you got to keep it moving, we are failing to um, acknowledge that it is hard to do that when something is embedded in your body. That's like telling somebody who just discovered that they have a cancerous tumor, just keep it moving. Right. You know, just keep moving. Right. It'd be okay. <laughs> right. No, this is going to grow if I don't get something done about this. Right. And so it is with even our grief. If we don't find ways to process that in healthy ways, especially if it is um, promoted by trauma. Yeah, we are we are only just setting a person on a course to continue downward mm. is what we're really doing. Well. So we need to teach yeah. healthy grief. You know, we need Definitely. to teach that it is okay to grieve. When you even talked about, you know, what to do in the household. I tell people, you know, when they're at home, I'm like, how are you grieving? Well, I don't want to cry because I don't want the kids to see me cry or, you know, hubby or wife or whatever. Why? Yeah. Because I mean, you're sad. So if we're sad, we're supposed to cry, right? And how else do we teach younger kids, again, how to deal with these not so great feelings if we don't model that? Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, and I'm going to have to have you back, uh, Dr. Gatson, because there's just so much that we can unpack about this. And like you said, I feel as if there are so many people who need to hear so much because um, 2020 was a hard year. But not only that, we're still in a pandemic, uh, a pandemic that nobody would have imagined would have lasted this long. I mean, I don't think that anybody when we started out last February or March would have imagined that living in America that we would still be in this. Um, and you know, you still have people who are struggling to find income, people who are, you know, food insecure, people who may be put out of their homes who have lost their businesses that they worked for for years. Um, and, uh, you know, even as an educator, um, having to deal with students who are processing a lot um, and, you know, trying their best to make it through school while they're doing all of the processing. Um, and, you know, it is heavy on the mind. It is very, mm -hmm. very heavy on the mind. So, um, you know, before we leave, what do you think are some ways that people can be mentally aware for themselves and to try their best to stay mentally well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ooh, and that is loaded. <laughs> you know, like you say, when it is um, and it, when it is obvious that there are so many things that are now, you know, impacting a person's well-being. But I do say I, I personally start with, again, just grieving mm -hmm. the ability Grieve. I mean, you got to put that in just like we say, oh, get up and stretch or get up and do 30 minutes of exercise. I say we need to institute grieving into our daily routine, because if we don't, um, again, we just have this accumulation of things that are just building up within us. So even if it's just as much as sitting down and writing it out, journaling, I'm a big proponent, prescribe journaling all of the time writing those things out. At least that is starting to get it from the inside out, okay? Movement of our bodies, whatever that looks like, if it's yoga, if it's running, if it's exercise, if it's literally rolling the floor, we know that um, the research has shown that that is a way that helps people deal with the traumatic effects in their body. So moving their bodies, um, it is real important. Some of the food choices that we do make too, because there are some foods that will mimic um, like feelings of anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we eat a lot of chocolate, you know, heart racing and everything. And depending on how our bodies are already made up, I mean, we could start to feeling a little keyed up and a little on edge and it could be because of the foods that we're eating and maybe not necessarily so much that there is a true something going on, just as well as, you know, eating too much sugar, you crash, boom, and then we're feeling down. So I do believe that those are some ways, meditation and prayer, definitely, mm -hmm. you know, definitely. Right. Um, but I would say with that, my disclaimer, even with that would be not necessarily again, praying just all about the positive, but yeah. literally laying our hearts you know, to God, being able to cast, literally cast those cares to God, um, those things that we may dare not speak aloud to others, that um, that is a catharsis yeah. that takes place and that also could help promote em um, emotional and mental well-being. I agree. Amen. And we thank you for that. We thank you so much for your time. We thank you for your expertise and your knowledge. And, and we thank you on behalf of those that 
you're working with those you are serving um, in the field every day. And we know that, you know, it cannot be easy, even in your field to have to serve people because um, you're not able to maybe see them or to touch them. And so, you know, we're praying for you daily um, and we're praying for your mental health also, because we know that, you know, as you uh, help to serve others that, it, you know, you also have some maybe ramification and effect. Mm -hmm. So we pray for you and your family and we pray that all things be, will be well, but we definitely will invite you back. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, like I said, I think that there are so many levels um, to this, to the mental health conversation, um, because there's a conversation involving our youth. Uh, there's a conversation, you know, involving um, adults, but then there's a conversation. Again, there's so much to impact as far as, you know, where, where the church and mental health can really intersect to really make a difference, because we know that so many people value the church. And if, you know, if we could really get that broader conversation happening, I think that we would really begin to see an impact. So mm -hmm. thank you again for everything mm -hmm. that you offered on today. We really appreciate it. And thank you again to all of our viewers and our listeners who tuned in today to this episode of uh, Confessions, Convictions, and Conversations. We hope to see you same time next week. Um, and thank you again to our guest, Dr. Gatson. Um, Dr. Gatson, how can our uh, guests get in touch with you? Do you have any social media uh, pages that they can follow? Yeah, they can. Um, I'm most active, I would say, on Instagram at, I think it's at Dr. Monique Smith Gadsden and website by the same. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. so we'll make sure that we get that information out there. Um, and then the name of your podcast is And the Church Said. And the church said, amen. So we appreciate that. Um, I love that title. And the church <laughs> said. Um, so make sure that you are staying mentally well, mentally aware. Um, and as Dr. Gatson said, take some time for yourself in the morning to uh, grieve whatever you may need to grieve, uh, to journal, to meditate, to get your body moving, and to process everything that may be happening as you work to free your spirits. And then today, as you work to free your mind. And before you leave, I'd like to pray for you. Dear God, thank you so much for the people in my army. Thank you so much for Dr. Gatson. Help us always to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And dear God, we just thank you for this time together that we had to share. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to Confessions, Convictions, and Conversations. We are just getting started. So make sure to connect with me on social at AS Davenport and at Fresh Start Fridays. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.asdministries.org. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and be a part of April's Army. Remember, any time is a good time to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, live by your own personal convictions, and it's always a great time to have a good conversation. I'm your girl, April Davenport. See you next time.